Horican Baptist Church exists to see God glorified, the church edified, and our community served by declaring and displaying the gospel. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them to John chapter 2. Last Sunday, we finished the first chapter, praise the Lord, and Jesus made some amazing claims about himself. In that chapter, his disciples would, would see, uh, Jesus claimed that his disciples would see the angels ascending and descending on him, just like Jacob's ladder. Jesus called himself the Son of Man, which was the title of the heavenly figure from Daniel 7, who all the nations would worship and serve. Jesus told his followers that they were going to see great things to come, but so far Jesus has done nothing to back up his claims. So when we get to chapter 2, the reader should be on the edge of their seat and ready to see what happens next. In this chapter, Jesus shows up to a wedding and there's a problem. The wedding party has run out of wine for the guest. Now that poses a problem for us as Baptists living in America at this time. The issue for us is that Jesus, number one, was present at a party where wine was served, and number two, made more wine by his divine power, and that makes a lot of us nervous and uncomfortable because in America, we we typically have three views of wine and alcohol. The first way people view wine in this country, which is certainly the most popular, is that people view wine as a god. Wine is the god of many Americans, and they worship frequently. Whether someone is officially an alcoholic or not, we have a culture in this country that celebrates drunkenness and intoxication. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Do you have troubles? Do you have problems in your life? Don't deal with them. Crack open a cold one. But look, biblically, Proverbs says, Wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Ephesians tells us that it's a sin to get drunk with wine. And Galatians tells us straight up, those who get drunk will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The abuse of alcohol is a serious sin and the Bible is explicit about this. I also have to say that I've heard many people many times raise a glass and say, well, Jesus turned water to wine and then go on to abuse alcohol and get drunk. And that's not just the sin of drunkenness, that's also blasphemy. If you're using the actions of Jesus to justify your drunkenness, then that's blasphemy. Why is it blasphemy? Because not only did Jesus never abuse alcohol, he never sinned. But if he did get drunk, that is clearly a problem. Because if he sinned, then he's not God, because God cannot sin. And if he did sin then he's not the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and we have no savior. See how dangerous that, that claim is and it's made so, so joyfully and lightly? I think this is how most of Americans view wine. Look, I grew up in South Louisiana where it's legal to have an open beverage in the street. Mardi Gras, people just have beers all around. You have drive-through daiquiri places like five minutes from my house where I grew up where you drive through and it's got a piece of tape over the lid. So this is a closed container. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm sure people aren't drinking that. That's, that's the culture I grew up in, like where wine is celebrated. And, and I'm sure some of us can, can relate with that culture. Wine is a God to many people, and people use this God to try to satisfy the deep longings of their soul. And let me tell you, it never will satisfy, because it wasn't designed to satisfy your soul. Only one thing can satisfy the deep desires of your soul. But there's another view 
that we're more familiar with as Baptists in America. It's that we view wine not as a god, but as gross and as sinful. And look, I I totally understand this mindset of viewing wine as sinful because growing up, I have only ever seen people abuse wine. I'd never seen people not abuse it. The problem with viewing wine as sinful is that you get to passages like this. And if you look at Jesus' behavior in the New Testament, he doesn't treat wine as either a god or gross or sinful. In Jesus' day, there was no refrigeration, and you need refrigeration to have grape juice that's non-alcoholic wine. So when Jesus drinks at the Last Supper and at other times in the New Testament, he was drinking alcoholic wine. There's no doubt about that. So we have these two views in our country of wine as either a god or wine as gross and sinful, but I think there's a third view, and it's the biblical view. That is to say that wine isn't a god, and it's, it's not a gross or sinful thing, but it, it's a gift. Over 25 times, the Bible describes wine as a blessing, like in the book of Judges, it says that God gives wine to make uh, his, his heart glad. In the Psalms, it says God blesses with wine to gladden the heart of man. And this isn't just just one simple occurrence, but it's all over the Bible that there's this attitude towards wine, not as gross or something to be worshipped, but as a blessing. So so what do we do with these two ideas that we find in the Bible, that that wine is a gift, but also wine leads to sin? I think the simple way to do that is to say that drinking is not a sin as long as you don't get drunk. I think the biblical way to think about wine is to say it's a gift from God that is easily abused by excess. So when we see Jesus in the New Testament drinking, it's okay and he's not sinning. When he turns water to wine, he's not sinning. He does not get drunk, nor does he condone others who may or may not get drunk. If you have more questions, look, I had like 10 pages on this. And and the point of this passage is not about wine and whether it's sinful or whether it's not. And I know this this is an issue that that hits home for a lot of people and is, is disturbing and uncomfortable. Look, our view of wine is not a first-tier issue. It's not even a second-tier issue. It's like third, fourth, fifth. There's so many more important issues that are so more important, like the Trinity, like that we're saved by Christ through faith alone. We can disagree, and if you don't like what I'm saying, that's, that's great. We can still love each other and go to church together. But listen, no matter your understanding of wine, I'd ask that you try to lay aside those mindsets and think like an ancient Israelite would. In this story, wine is a part of the story. It's not the focus. Jesus is not making some kind of statement by turning the water to wine. What's he doing then? He's showing off his glory. And that's where our focus needs to be. If we can focus on Jesus, then then this is what I think will happen. We'll all be walking out of here loving him and, and loving his glory more than when we first sat down to listen to this sermon. So, so, so that's not the focus. I, I just present that because I'm so zealous to say Jesus is not a sinner. That, that even though this may make some of you uncomfortable, because look, I know grew, I was saved in a Baptist church. I've been in Baptist churches all my life. I know this is an uncomfortable issue for some. But it's more important that you're offended rather than Jesus be presented as a sinner. Because we need him as the spotless lamb of God. And so now let's pray that, that, that as we address this issue and maintain and establish Jesus is not sinning at this wedding, let's pray that God can clear our minds and help us focus not on the wine, but on the one who turns it from water. Let's pray. Dear Lord of creation, I pray that you would clear our minds. 
Give us an eager spirit to know what your word says. Let us not be distracted by the minor details of the passage and miss Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes on the founder and finisher of our faith. As I preach, send your spirit so that the sermon that is heard may be far better than the one that is delivered. In the name of the Son of Man, we pray. Amen. Talk is cheap. At some point, you got to put up or shut up. The Olympics have just ended, and it's always funny to me when couch potatoes get online and say, that doesn't look that hard. I could do that. And recently, a high school basketball player ran into a former NBA player named Brian Scalabrine at a local gym, and he challenged him to a game of 101. The only reason I've ever heard of Brian Scalabrine, if you've heard of him, this is probably the only reason you've heard of him, is because it was a joke for several years that he was the best player in the league despite averaging 3.1 points a game during his distinguished career. Scalabrine retired nine years ago, and this young high schooler, thinking Scalabrine was a joke, bet him a pair of expensive sneakers that he can beat him in a game. A video of the match showed Scalabrine not just beating the kid, not just winning without trying, but winning 11-0 before the high schooler called it quits and gave up. Anyone can say anything, but there comes a time where you have to put your money where your mouth is. In John's first chapter, we heard the claims of Jesus. But if you are a skeptic and you're listening to the claims of Jesus, you're probably thinking, okay, prove it. Back it up. And today we're going to see Jesus do just that. John wrote this book so that the skeptic would believe that Jesus was who he said he was. But he also wrote this so that believers could grow and develop their faith. He wrote this so that you and I would walk away with greater confidence in the claims of Christianity than when we first sat down. Let me ask you, are you one of those skeptics I was talking about? What do you believe about Jesus? My invitation is this, come and see. Come and you will see. Look and see what Jesus does. When Jesus claims to be the son of man, was he lying about his claims? Was he a madman? Was he a lunatic? Or is he Lord of all creation? Is he the son of man? This passage answers those questions. For most of us, you're probably not a skeptic, if we're being real honest. But let me ask, do you ever have doubts? Do you ever struggle with your faith? Do you ever wonder if Christianity is true? You're not alone. We've been talking these past weeks about the example of John the Baptist and how great of a witness he was. John unashamedly preached that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Later in the story, near the end of his life, while he's in prison, about to be executed, he actually sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus, and he asks them, are you the Messiah? It seems that that John is even displaying doubts at the end of his life. He's not a non-Christian, but it seems like this is, in some ways, natural. American Christianity has told us for decades that being a Christian means that you are unshakably happy and you never question anything. But I think we need to re-examine biblically what being a Christian actually looks like. As Christians, we live by faith, not by sight. And I believe that our faith is reasonable, but it's still faith. And John includes this story and this gospel for you, Christian. He tells us this story expecting us to have questions and to have doubts. He wants to show you proof that Jesus was who he said he was. My prayer this morning is that this first sign of Jesus would cause you and I to believe. Some of us for the first time, for others, that our faith would be made stronger. 
In John 2, verses 1 through 12, we find three truths about Jesus that should lead us into a deeper faith. We find in verses 1 through 5 that Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. Secondly, we find in verses 6 through 8 that Jesus cares about all our needs. Jesus cares about all our needs. And finally, we'll find in verses 9 through 12 that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is who he says he is. I'm going to turn this AC off real quick because it's cold in here. I don't know about y'all. So last week it was hot and I needed it, but this week I think we'll be fine. So to start off with the, with the first truth about Jesus, Jesus came to save sinners. Look with me to verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. The story begins by saying the wedding was in Cana. Now remember that Jesus was from Nazareth, which was very close to Cana. How close was it? Well, I'm glad you asked. It was about 3.6 miles from Nazareth to Cana. And to put that in perspective, if you were to walk out of these doors and go to Tops in Chestertown, that's about 3.7 miles. So the distance from this church to Tops is the distance between Nazareth to Cana. It's pretty close. It's a long walk, but it's pretty close. And most of you know that, at least in this town, everybody knows everybody, and I've found that everybody is related to each other somehow. (laughs) And in Cana, it would have been the same thing, if not more so, because they didn't have cars, they didn't have ways to travel like, like we do today. Jesus and his mother and his disciples are all invited to the wedding. And this isn't surprising because all of Jesus' disciples are from the area and they all likely knew the couple getting married or maybe even were related to them. Now, look at the problem that arises in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. It seems that Mary is especially close to the family and has some kind of role in the wedding itself because she brings the problem of no wine to Jesus. And then later, if you look at verse 5, she commands the servants and they listen. Running out of wine would have been a sign of disrespect in this culture. We don't live in a culture of honor and shame like, like they do. In the Middle East, your reputation was everything. And this kind of embarrassment could follow you for years. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson wrote on this passage, a wedding celebration could last as long as a week and the financial responsibility lay with the groom. To run out of supplies would be a dreadful embarrassment in a shame culture. There is some evidence it could also lay the groom open to a lawsuit from aggrieved relatives of the bride. I've been to some bad weddings before that I wish I could have, you know, sued the groom after. We wasted my time. This was serious stuff back in the day. So naturally, having some role in the wedding, Mary hears about the problem and goes to Jesus. And Jesus, being her oldest son, would have been someone she relied on regularly at this point in her life. But I also think that there's something deeper going on. Mary had heard the message of the angel all those years ago. She knew what her son would be. John the Baptist, also her nephew. And she might have heard stories about John's preaching or heard John preaching himself. She probably realized that Jesus had begun to gather disciples, and maybe now she was thinking, this is the perfect opportunity for you to show yourself for who you really are. And I can imagine that that she has been waiting for this day for a long, long time, because even though she was so faithful that God chose her over all the women in Israel to bear the Messiah, to be the mother of God, what do you think her reputation was at this point in her life? What do you think people in town thought about her? And... In this honor and shame culture, she was the girl who got pregnant before she got married. I think that Mary possibly 
may see this not only as an opportunity to serve this couple, but as an opportunity for her name to be cleared. And we see that people probably either didn't believe her story or didn't know her story, because when Jesus returns to his hometown, they don't believe his claims. They say, you're the son of a carpenter. What are you saying? You're the Messiah. So imagine Mary's reputation. And could you blame her for, for wanting Jesus to reveal himself around all of her family and friends? But look at Jesus' response in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. This is a passage that's challenging for translators to get into English, and so it sounds awkward for us, but it's really not. First off, this term woman is not disrespectful. I even, as I just read this verse, read it in a way that would be disrespectful, that if I said woman to Katie in the way that I read this verse, she would be offended, right? Like, it's hard for me to say, hey, you know, it's like, imagine, like, I think of a cab driver in New York saying, hey, lady, get out of the way. Like, that, but that's not the way Jesus is addressing his mother. Uh, this term is not disrespectful, but it's certainly not a term you'd use for your mom. The word is closer to someone in the South respectfully calling an older woman ma'am, or you think of someone in England saying madam. There was never a child in the history of the universe who was as respectful and obedient as Jesus was. He never disobeyed or dishonored his parents, not once. But at the beginning of his ministry, he distances himself from his mother because even she is going to have to approach him not as her son, but as her Messiah. Mary is a descendant from Adam and Eve as well. She's a sinner in need of a savior here. And, and Jesus, it seems like he's rebuking her here and saying, your concerns are not my concern. And you have that phrase, what does this have to do with me? I think Jesus is saying, what has this concern of yours to do with me? It's a gentle rebuke. And, and, and he's saying, my mission starts when it's supposed to. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. And this phrase is vital to understanding John. Jesus uses this phrase 22 times in this gospel. It's everywhere. This is the first time we hear about it. In this passage, uh, his hour is not yet here. But if you look through the book of John, you'll see him speak about his hour again and again. All the way up till chapter 12, Jesus says his hour is here and his hour is also coming. And then you finally get to chapter 12, which is the Last Supper, the night before his crucifixion. And Jesus says, his hour is here. So what is his hour? It's the hour of the cross. When Jesus begins his ministry, his hour has come, but it hasn't fully come until he gets to the real reason he came. To die as a substitute for sinners. Jesus was a great teacher and he did amazing signs. And we're going to see Jesus perform some amazing signs in this book. And every time he performs a miracle, it is proof that he is who he says he is. But if you believe that Jesus is the son of God, but failed to trust in his sacrifice, your belief is worthless. Even the demon believes that God, that God is one and they tremble, but they're not going to heaven. Jesus said that in the afterlife, some people would go to eternal punishment, but the righteous would go to eternal life. The punishment is that you, or the problem is that you and I are unrighteous. If you don't believe you're unrighteous, just compare yourself to Jesus as a kid. Jesus never disobeyed or dishonored his parents. Have you? You may say, well, everyone has done that and you're right. But just because everyone has done something doesn't make it right. Not only is dishonoring your parents one of the Ten Commandments, but also in Romans 1, Paul has this long list of sins, and, and he says at the end that all these sins are deserving of death. And in that list, he includes those who disobeyed their parents. 
And, and Paul is not writing to say that the government should execute bratty children, even though some days it may, that would be great. But what he's saying is that we are deserving of spiritual death by our disobedience. The wages of sin is death. And we all have broken God's command, so we're all guilty. And what does a good judge do with guilty criminals? He punishes them. But God, being rich in mercy, also sent Jesus to make a way for lawbreakers like you and I to be forgiven. Jesus is on a mission to save sinners, and that's why he came. So when Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet coming. He is saying this. My concerns are not your concerns. And showing everyone that I am the Messiah does not fit into my plans. Mary has the natural desire, even a good desire, to have her reputation restored. But Jesus says, my plan is better. Your reputation will be restored. Just wait, but on my terms. So Mary accepts what Jesus is saying, and she doesn't argue with him, but she knows her son, and she knows that Jesus will do something, even if it's not on her terms. So she tells the servants, to listen to Jesus and she lets go of her plans and she just submits and says, okay, do it your way. In Luke, Jesus said for the man, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus' number one mission when he came to earth was to die for sinners. That was the plan. That was the goal. And nothing will interfere with that plan or goal. But notice that his mission, even though his mission is to go to the cross, he still cares about the needs of this couple because he cares about all our needs. Look with me at verses six through eight. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. On a quick side note, most commentators note that the reason John pointed out that the servants filled the jars to the brim was because that left no possibility of Jesus mixing something with the water to make it appear like wine. It's interesting that Jesus' first miracle is this one because it's not that important. Healing blind mans, healing lepers, raising the dead seems so much more important. Saving the honor of this unnamed couple seems trivial compared to the other stuff. Reynolds Price, who was a professor at Duke Divinity, once wrote, If you were inventing a biography of Jesus Christ... You would never invent your first inaugural sign, a miraculous solution to a mere social oversight. The only logical explanation for this particular sign being the first one is it must have actually happened. The trivial nature of this miracle confirms that this story happened. If I was making this up, this would not be the first sign. If I wanted to impress people, this would not be the first sign. But the fact that it's a trivial sign gives us confidence that John's telling the truth. And it's interesting that Jesus still answers at least part of his mother's request. He's not going to reveal his identity to everyone here, not to the wedding party, not even to the master. But Jesus still saves the couple from their shame. Why? Because he cares about their needs and he cares about all of our needs. But that still leaves us with why. Why does Jesus care? I was in a conversation with a guy at church a long time ago and we were talking about the sovereignty of God and how much God was in control. And this one guy was telling me, you know, God can do whatever he wants, but he doesn't care about the little stuff. So he's not in control of that. Uh, he doesn't care about me putting on my pants in the morning or what I eat for dinner. It seems reasonable on the surface. Why would God care about you eating dinner or putting your pants on in the morning? But it's not even biblical, even a little bit. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, 
And why are you anxious about clothing? If God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Then you got 1 Corinthians 10, which says, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So God cares about the clothes that we wear and make sure that we are clothed. And he cares about what we eat and drink, and that we're doing it with the right motives. And I think even putting on our clothes in the morning, if we're thanking God for the clothes, that's the attitude we need to have. And God does care about those things. In this 24-hour news cycle age, it feels impossible, at least for me, to care about anything because there is so much going wrong all the time. Jesus has no such limitations. He is infinite and therefore can care about all our needs, even the small ones. At this feast, Jesus cares about even the honor of this unnamed couple, and he acts. So not only did Jesus come to save sinners, and not only does Jesus care about all our needs, but also we see that Jesus is who he says he is. Look with me at verses 9 through 12, starting in verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Wait a second. When did the water become wine? Jesus never touched the jars. His disciples didn't touch the jars. He never prayed over them. He never, at least in, in the little bit, looked at the jars and went, wine. No. He just desired that the water became wine and it was so. This is different from every other prophet who came before Jesus. Every other prophet has like a staff like Moses or has prayers like Elijah. But Jesus is a prophet greater than Moses and Elijah. And then look what happens in verse 10. And, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Often wine was literally watered down. Wine in Israel could be 30 to 90% water. Oftentimes wine was watered down to the strength of what a beer is today. The more watered down, the cheaper the drink would be. And that's why the master uses the phrase poor wine. That's the cheap stuff. Most people serve the best wine because after a drink or two, your senses are a little dulled and you may not notice between the good wine and the watered down stuff. But even though this wine is 100% water, the master of the feast calls it the best wine. It should be no surprise that when Jesus makes wine, it's top quality. But the reason John tells us that this is to show us that it was a genuine miracle. If Jesus had somehow mixed the water in the jars with regular wine, it would not have garnered this kind of attention. The fact that the jars were full and that neither Jesus nor his disciples handled the water or the wine and the fact that the wine is described as the best wine should lead the observer to one conclusion. This is a genuine miracle by Jesus. Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote on this verse, To him who created the vine and made it bear grapes at the first, the change was perfectly easy. He who create matter out of nothing could much more easily change one kind of matter with another. Amen, somebody. That's the power of our Jesus. And then look how John sums it up in the last two verses, verse 11 through 12. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. John points out that this is the first because there will be more. Notice he doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a sign. Why does that matter? Because signs point to something. Signs are significant. Signs are significant. In the Old Testament, we call the 10 plagues the 10 plagues because they're terrible things that happened to the Egyptians. But in the Bible, 
Consistently, the ten plagues are referred to not as plagues, but as signs and wonders. Why? Because back in Exodus, God does every one of those signs to show off his glory. He is proving in sign after sign that he is superior to every Egyptian God. And in this passage, Jesus is showing off his glory. And John actually says he manifested his glory. And so every time we're going to see Jesus perform a miracle, he's going to pull back the veil of his divinity. That he's going to show that he is deity. He's showing his glory off. He's proving that he is who he says he is. And if you look back at verse 11, you'll see the disciples' reaction is very strange. The disciples believed in him. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't they already believe in him? Didn't we just have this whole scene with Nathaniel believing in him and they're following him already? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All those things are true. But even though his disciples had already begun following and believing, this display of Jesus' glory deepens and strengthens their faith. Every time that you read about a sign of Jesus, it should lead you to have more faith, greater confidence, a fuller assurance that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the word who in the beginning was with God. Jesus is the word who is God. Jesus is the life and the light of man. He is the word who became flesh. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who baptizes with the spirit. He is our Messiah. He is the Christ. He is our rabbi. He is our teacher. He is the son of God and the king of Israel. He is the son of man and he is who he says he is. Amen, church. That's our Jesus. He is the ability and the authority to back up his claims. He is who he says he is. My prayer this morning is that this first sign of Jesus would cause you and I to believe, some of us for the first time, for others, that our faith would be made stronger. Because in John 2, verses 1 through 11, we found three truths about Jesus that should lead us into deeper faith. We found that Jesus came to save sinners, and Jesus cares about all our needs, and that Jesus is who he says he is. So let me ask you again, are you one of those skeptics I was talking about? What do you believe about Jesus? You've seen his first side. You've heard his claims. Was Jesus a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or is he Lord of all? For the rest of us who are believers, who struggle with doubt, do you believe? Do you see? Jesus is showing off his glory to give you a deeper and greater confidence in his claims. So what do we do now with these first signs? Well, I've got three pastoral charges for you. Three pastoral charges. First pastoral charge is this. Confess Jesus as Lord. Confess Jesus as Lord. If you've not trusted in Jesus alone as your Savior, consider this. Whether you disobeyed your parents or you've abused alcohol and gotten drunk, your sins have made you unacceptable to a holy and righteous God. God's word says that all who remain in such a a state will be condemned to a place called hell for all of eternity. And I don't say this because I'm the preacher who's better than you. I confess just outright that I was a disobedient brat. I dishonored my parents constantly. And to my shame, I've gotten drunk before. And I absolutely regret it. And if it were not for the grace and the mercy of God, I would deserve to be condemned to hell for all of eternity. But God, the Father, sent Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, to die for sinners to drive for the drunkards and the disobedience by enduring God's wrath for them on the cross. 
And Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So turn from your sin and confess Jesus is Lord today. Amen, somebody. Amen. Second pastoral charge, bring your cares to Jesus. Bring your cares to Jesus. When I think about how Mary went to Jesus, I see it as a beautiful picture of how God often responds to our prayers. How often have you prayed only to not have your prayers answered and then years later only to realize, oh, thank the Lord that he did not answer my prayer there. His plans were way better. God is infinite and we are not. There's a bigger story here. There's a bigger plan and he knows what he is doing. Even though the honor of this unnamed couple was trivial in the grand scheme of things, Jesus still cared enough to intervene because he cares for us. Luke 12 says that God has the hairs on our heads numbered. In Psalm 56, 8, David wrote, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He cares about you when you're hungry and when you're cold. He cares about you when you're tired and when you're lonely. He cares about you when you're struggling with doubt or struggling with your sin. He's not just focused on a few. He's not limited, but cares about you and in all of your sufferings, no matter how small. Our God is a God of grace and compassion and love. That's why we can come to God in prayer, even for the little things, because he cares about all our needs. So the charge is simple. simple. Bring your cares to him. And finally, grow your faith by looking to Jesus. Grow your faith by looking to Jesus. But how do I look to Jesus? Great question. You look to Jesus through the scripture. Like coming this morning and, and hearing this preaching and hearing Jesus preach, that should lead you to grow your faith. If you're struggling with doubts, like get involved in every Bible study and every prayer meeting, every Sunday school, and just listen and engage and hear the word of God preached and taught and download, download podcasts and listen to sermons and do everything you can to get a glimpse of the glory of Christ. And the simplest way I think we do that is just daily reading the Bible and looking for Jesus in the word. In this book, in God's word, he reveals himself to us. We don't just read the Bible because we're supposed to. We read the Bible because in this book, we meet with our God. We see his glory. Let me conclude with a quote from, from Pastor John Piper. He, he said, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, loves to speak light into hearts and minds. God wrote a book. And with his book, these words in front of us, he wakens our dead, bored souls. He frees us from bondage to sin, from desires that rob us of life. He comforts the depressed, inspires the discouraged, guides the confused. He empowers us to make our lives count for his cause in the world. He satisfies us completely and forever with words, his words. So will I read my Bible tomorrow? Where else would I go? How else will I know him? How else will I prepare myself to enjoy him forever? Yes, I'll spend the rest of my life looking out this window, watching and waiting for another sign of him, another miracle, another glimpse of my God. And it's in that spirit that if you're able, let's stand and sing, tis so sweet to, dr to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. Number 257.
Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.